Good morning, church. Daniel chapter 3 is where we're going to be today, and I want to start a little bit of a historical story, if you'll bear with me. Um, In May uh, 1940, if you're a student of history, you'll know that's the early days of World War II. Courage, which is what we're going to talk about here today from Daniel 3, courage would play out across the English Channel in a place called Dunkirk, France. The Allied armies, this was again the early days of World War II, the Allied armies, the English, uh, British expeditionary force, um, the French army, several French armies, and then what was left of the Belgian army because the Nazi armies had come through uh, Belgium by this point. Uh, These uh, armies of these three countries were surrounded by the advancing German armies and uh, literally their uh, backs were to the sea. Everybody understood that only a miracle could save them. In fact, the number is a bit staggering. More than 400,000 troops were on the beaches of Dunkirk. Among the communiques that were being received in England from the British forces there was um, this one somewhat cryptic three-word communique went back to London, and it just simply said this, but if not... But if not, it's cryptic to us because we don't immediately understand the reference. The soldiers that were on that beach in 1940 were largely um, also Sunday school kids. They had gone to their churches at a time when little boys did that, and they would have heard the Old Testament stories, the Sunday school stories would have been taught to them, and they would have understood this three-word phrase. What they meant to communicate, of course, was a certain intent. The phrase was meant to tell those back in England that no matter what, we aren't surrendering. It's clear that things are not going our way. It's clear that we will lose the Battle of Dunkirk. But we will not capitulate to the enemy. The Old Testament story that that three-word phrase refers to was about three young Jewish teenage boys who had faced their own life and death struggle against a very powerful king and who courageously stood for their God rather than bow the knee to another. And when faced with what was for them an impossible situation, their backs literally to the wall or to the sea, this is what they said, and we'll see this when we get into the message as well. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God's or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not, I hope you know that the Christian life lived out as the Bible lays it out for us requires that brand of courage. It requires a declaration that we're going to see as we study through Daniel 3, a declaration that I would hope each of us in this room could make. And it is simply this, I'll live for Jesus when things go my way. Well, that's not hard at all. 
I'll live for Jesus when things go my way. But if not, I'll still live for Jesus. Do you think you could make that declaration? Hopefully by the end of this message and us looking at this chapter, we'll be there. Let's bow our heads and pray and commit um, our way to the Lord. Father, there's no doubt in my mind that as we uh, come to the text this morning that, Father, we need your Holy Spirit to fill this room. There's so much opposition and, and temptation that we face to not listen to, not understand, not do your word. Left to ourselves, God, we'd reject this, pick the way of comfort. So, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would break through all of that. Break through, Father, our own flesh. Break through the world system that we're so given to and, 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 and Father, a part of and influenced by. Break through, Father, if, if there's any evil spirits in this room trying to convince us not to believe and not to obey, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would chase them out. Father, that this would be a holy place. God, this would be a place where your spirit is moving freely and where we would be convinced of these truths. And God, that we would commit ourselves again to live fully for you courageously, no matter what happens. Thank you, Father, for hearing this prayer and for answering us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 You agree with that prayer? Amen. Let's get after this. I'll live for Jesus. This is the declaration. I'll live for Jesus when things go my way. But if not, I'll still live for Jesus. Even when, let's look at this verse, even when I'm mocked, I'm mocked for my faith. We're going to read the text as we go along here today. This is Daniel, Daniel chapter 3. I'm going to do the first seven verses. And uh, just a comment along the way as we're reading this together. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So he's set up this massive statue. And you would think, first of all, that the inspiration for this statue came from the story in Daniel chapter 2. If you were here last week, we looked at that. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, had this dream. He needed to know the interpretation of the dream. He went to his counselors and said, you need to tell me the dream and the interpretation. And only Daniel could do that. And only because God gave it to him. And the dream was actually, the vision that he had was of this massive statue that depicted kind of a, 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 what was going to happen. It was a prophetic word about all the kingdoms that are going to come after Babylon. The first part of the image was a head of gold, and that was representative of Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon, the one that was uh, happening right at the time. And so um, that vision, you can imagine, might have been the inspiration for what Nebuchadnezzar does in chapter 3 in having this statue crafted and set up on the plain as a kind of a memorial or tribute to himself. And you have to believe that he kind of missed the point of the vision that was given to him by doing this, but at least we understand where it's coming from. Now, the height of this, it says, is 60 cubits. That's not a measurement we use today. I looked on my iPhone measurement app. The cubit is not there. And, and so we don't have that. But what it really is is about 90 feet high or about 30 meters high. And if you want to get a good sense of how high this is, in fact, um, Barry City Hall is nine stories high. 
So the next time you're down on Collier Street, you just look up at the city hall, you get a very good sense of how imposing and how big this statue actually was. It's the height of our of city hall. Verse 2 now, verse 2 through 5. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province, because all the bureaucrats, anybody who's working for government gets invited to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, now at this point, again, just a little pause to say, it's just a dedication for a statue. That's not a problem. So any of the government officials, including those who are believing in God, would, have no, would not be in any kind of compromising position in order to come just to a dedication of a, of a statue. That's not a problem. Verse 3, then, it goes through the whole list again, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed... Okay, now we're going to have a problem. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Remember that Babylon is now made up of all these conquered peoples, and people have been brought from exile, not just from Israel, but from all these other nations. They've been brought to Babylon to learn Babylonian ways and to be added to the kind of the strength of the empire. So you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound... Now, we're going to get a whole list of musical instruments, the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, none of which were used in worship this morning, (laughs) and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Well, that's a big problem now. That's a big problem, especially for the young men that we're going to see in this story in just a few moments. Now, why is he doing this? It's important to ask this question. There's a whole melding here in Babylon between kind of the political and the religious, and you can't really separate the two. It's so ingrained in the entire structure of the, of the culture of the Babylonian empire that politics and religion just go together. And what Nebuchadnezzar is really doing here is he's consolidating his power. He heard the vision. He knows he's the head of gold. He, he wants to make sure that he remains that head of gold and that he maintains control over his empire as long as he can. So the way he's going to do that is through this power move, and he gathers together all of the government officials to pledge themselves to his authority. The thing about the statue is we're not sure if it's a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself or if it's of one of the Babylonian gods. One thing we know for sure is the Babylonians were not like the Egyptians. The Egyptians thought of their kings as deities. But the Babylonians weren't really into that. The kings were kings and the gods were gods and they had kind of a cooperation, but they didn't look at their king as a god. So to look at this statue and say that it was a statue of Nebuchadnezzar is probably off the mark because they wouldn't be worshiping Nebuchadnezzar. But it's probably one of the Babylonian gods or a representation of that. And so what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's melding the religion and polish together, together and he's saying... When you pledge to this statue, you're pledging to me and to my power. And as an illustration of that, the list of who the government officials are is very telling. Because included in that are justices and magistrates, judges. Now, one of the things we know as as, as citizens of a democracy is that you have to have a separation between the judiciary and the legislative assemblies, there must be a separation between those two things for a democracy to be healthy. 
Now, I don't want to get political here, but let's just say we had a little hiccup over that in Ontario in the last couple of weeks. The judiciary and the legislatures need to be separate for a healthy democracy. Well, the thing about Babylon is it's not a democracy. It's an absolute monarchy. And Nebuchadnezzar has the magistrates and the judges there because they too must pledge to him and to his government. I mean, this is an absolute power move on his part. Now, the, the re repetition we have in here of who those government officials are and the repetition we have over the, the whole pomp and circumstance over the musicians and the repetition we have nine times in here, it says, when it refers to the statue, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up. Nine times it says that in the chapter. And you think about all that repetition and why did they have all that in there and why wasn't it a shorter? They could have told the story so much more concisely. But this is the narrator or the author really saying to us, this is Nebuchadnezzar's show. He's the one who invited all these government officials, so we're going to make sure you know who he has there. It was him who wanted the big band. We're going to let you know multiple times how many instruments he has in his band. And we're going to make sure that every time we mention the statue, that everyone is reminded that Nebuchadnezzar himself is doing it. Let's all remember that this whole event, the whole charade, the whole thing is all dramatic political theater created by Nebuchadnezzar. So there's no doubt about that at all. Verse 6 goes on now. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. Well, that kind of puts a bit of a damper on the celebrations, wouldn't you say? But you can imagine in the, in the planning meetings prior to this big event, because they would have had committees together to kind of plan the whole thing out, and they would have been discussing all of this. Let's have this band, and let's have these instruments, and let's have all these people come to it. And they're planning the whole thing, and then they're like, but you know what? I anticipate, because we're bringing people from all these different languages and cultures and peoples, we're bringing all these people in, some people, some people are not going to like it. So unless we build a threat into it, we might have some opposition. I mean, verse 6 is only there because they suspected some people were going to oppose what they were doing. And that's, in fact, what we're going to find out. Verse 7, therefore, and we're coming to, coming to like this big moment. As soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, just in case you had forgotten who set it up. <laughs> now, before we go any further with this, and again, we're talking about being mocked for our faith. And this is a, making a mockery of the faith of all these other peoples. So I believe a couple of things here that I think are worth noting at this point so that we bring this all into sharp contrast. And the first is this, I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. See, I really, in my mind, I thought there would be more of a response to that. <laughs> I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Amen. Okay, I thought some of you believe that too. <laughs> Secondly, so that's the first thing. I believe two things very strongly. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And two, countries and citizens of countries have the right to not believe that. Do you believe that as well? 
Citizens and countries have the right to not believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. I believe that. I believe they have that right. I believe that it's God himself who gives humanity that right to not believe in him. That's the volition and the will that God has put inside of us. So I believe those two things very, very strongly. Now, at this point in the narrative, at the end of verse 7, we have no reason to believe that anything is amiss. A pagan country has asked its citizens to pledge their allegiance to the crown. Now, in fact, that's no business of mine. It's no business of yours. I understand something different about myself. I know myself as a follower of Jesus Christ that I am, according to Hebrews eleven sixteen, I am a citizen of a better country, a heavenly one. That in fact, I live as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a citizen of that kingdom. I live as a resident alien here on earth. I realize that that's my status. But I also recognize, and this is like a third thing I could say, Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Everyone has a right to believe that or not. And I could add this third one. These countries that we live in often become hostile to the true faith. Now, I believe all, all three of those things very firmly. And history has borne out time and time again that the nations of this world are hostile to true Christianity. And so the question that's in front of us is this, will I live for Jesus when things go my way? Again, not hard. But will I also live for Jesus when I'm being coerced by the state to worship the state, to comply with the values of the state? See, no, no this, is, this is exactly where our society is going. And that's why this book is so relevant to us today. We know that this is going in an undeniable direction in the West. This is exactly where it's going in Canada, the United States, and the United Kingdom. That we are increasingly being mocked for our faith. The state is fully anticipating all of this and is preparing its punishments for us. In fact, in the last year, as has been our custom over the last several years as a church, we apply to the federal government for summer student grants to bring interns on staff. And we have brought, I think, as many as five or six interns in the summer. They help us with children's ministry, with our High Five Camp. We've brought interns in for worship. We've brought interns in for youth. We've brought interns in uh, to help us with administration in the office. And it's wonderful because the young people get paid and they get experience in, in ministry. And it really helps us out as we deliver our ministries over the summer. It's really been a win-win for us. But this year, the federal government decided that in if you wanted the money, you had to tick a box that was what the government called a values test. The values according to the government, the government of the day. And they put those values in front of us. And as we read that attestation, we said, in good conscience, according to God's word, we cannot check the box. Therefore, we, along with thousands of other applicants across the country, were rejected in terms of summer grants. Now, listen, I'm not trying to run this ministry anyways on the backs of the federal government. Uh, we're not owed anything by the government. We don't, we don't deserve any money that they give us. It's just a government program. And they said no because we couldn't check their box. And I'm actually pretty fine with that. But we're naive if we don't think that that kind of values testing, that was just a little glimpse of what's coming. 
We're naive if we don't think that kind of values testing won't become more common in the years to come, that we won't be asked to pay a price when we refuse to check the box indicating our allegiance to the values of this world and this country. And what's, what it's going to do is it's going to push us to the margins. And whereas the church has traditionally played a center role in the culture that we live in, we're now going to get pushed right out to the margins. And in fact, a couple of pastors have written this in a book called Everyday Church. Tim Chester and Steve Timmis said this, being on the margins is normal Christian experience. Christendom was the aberration. By Christendom, they mean kind of like official Christianity in the Western world. Christendom was the aberration. Rather than assume we should have a voice in the media or on Main Street, we need to regain the sense that anything other than persecution is an unexpected bonus. The true church is constantly being opposed. It's constantly being mocked for its faith and its convictions. And the pressing question for us is, will I live for Jesus under those circumstances? Will I live for Jesus even if I'm mocked for my faith? And then we could take it another step and see this secondly, even when I'm falsely accused. Now back to verse 7, of course, it said that all the peoples fell down and worshiped the golden image. And then what we find out is that actually not everybody bowed down. That there were actually three who did not. Picking up at verse uh, 8 now. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Now, the Chaldeans were part of that advisory group, the senior advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar. But the Chaldeans, listen, they were native Babylonians. And what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's making his empire very diverse. And he's grabbing people from all of these conquered lands and he's bringing them all together in Babylon so that now it's not just about purely being Babylonian. So these Chaldeans, they have a bit of a bee in their bonnet about that. These certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. To maliciously accuse is to, listen, rip off or bite little pieces off of a person. I mean, it just, it, it communicates a disdain for someone, a, a deep bitterness that you have for them to do such a thing. And anyways, they declared, verse 9, to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a degree, decree that every man who hears the sound of, and they go through all the musical instruments, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship, they just review everything he said, shall be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And so they go through all of this in order to point out that these three Jews did not actually bow down. Again, they, verse 12, they say it again. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. This could be, in a general sense, anti-Semitism. We just don't like any Jews. And this could be, in a very particular sense, these Chaldeans are upset with these certain Jews because they were advanced to high office, though they're still exceptionally young. They had been esteemed and brought into high office. And these Chaldeans are like, why are these three Jewish teenagers senior advisors to the king? So this is really a little bit kind of general anti-Semitism. And in a more specific sense, it's personal jealousy 
over these three young men's appointment to government. And so, there's some plotting that's going on. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, and then he's gonna, they're going to go on to say what the issue is. How many people have ever played the game uh, Two Truths and a Lie? Have you played that game, Two Truths and a Lie? You've heard, heard about this game? So this is little known fact. This is right here, Daniel 3, is the origin of the game Two Truths and a Lie. Okay, because... Um, Look, listen, look, see if you can tell which one's the lie and which two are truths. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So three things are said. They don't pay attention to the king. They don't serve his gods. They don't worship the golden image that he set up. Two truths and a lie. Well, the lie is the first one. They do pay attention to the king. That's why they're on the plain of Dura during this dedication for this statue. That's why they're in high government office. They had already taken it upon themselves to integrate into Babylonian culture and learn it and to serve the king. That wasn't the issue. But these accusers are coming and they feel like the truths need to be accentuated with a falsehood in order to maliciously and falsely accuse these young men. For sure, the truths are apparent. They don't serve the Babylonian gods, and they're not about to worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Two truths and a lie. Now, there should be no confusion about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Because you love and follow Jesus, because you believe in his word, you need to expect that people are not going to be happy about that. Now, this should be no surprise to these young men, but it should be no surprise to us that people don't like us loving and following Jesus Christ. And we should expect to be maliciously and falsely accused. In fact, I got to thinking about this in terms of some of the things we do believe. And I realized that with almost everything I believe, people attach a falsehood to it. So let me give you some examples. I'll give you seven of these in a chart. Believing, first of all, that heterosexual marriage is God's design. I believe that, that God designed marriage to be heterosexual. But I also understand that that means that the culture around me looks at me saying that and believing that and says that I'm, I'm suffering from homophobia and that I hate gay people. It's far from, far, far from the truth that I can stand on my conviction and still love anyone who is in a same-sex relationship, who's struggling with same-sex attraction. That's the very nature of the church. And exactly what Jesus Christ modeled for us. But the lie gets attached to the truth. Here's a sec second one. Sex should only be within marriage. We're talking about heterosexual marriage now. You can't have sex outside of marriage. You can't have it before marriage. You can't have it with someone else while you're married. And I get accused now of being out of touch with society, out of touch, out of touch with the culture of the day. How could you marry something, somebody without knowing whether you're compatible in this area of your life? 
How would you expect a young person to restrain themselves in such a culture today? It's so much the norm. Yet that's God's design, and it's intended to protect us. How about this one? Uh, gender is binary. In other words, there's two. Two genders. There's not three. There's not five. There's not nine. It, gender is not fluid. There are two genders. But now I get accused of marginalizing trans people. When in fact, I love them. Pregnancy should not be terminated means that I'm falsely accused of opposing women's rights. Might as well deal with all the hard issues in one Sunday morning service, eh? Let's just get them all out there. Every single one of them. Let's push every button. I got three more. Male-only eldership in the church, male headship in the home. I'm charged of being misogynist. Believing in Six-day literal creation. My God's big enough for that. I believe in that. means that I, I uh, am accused falsely of having an anti-science bias when what I really believe is that we as followers of Jesus Christ should pursue the sciences so that we can look into, listen, the way God made things. That's what science is. And then believing, of course, and mentioned this already, Jesus is the only way to, God, way to God means that I'm falsely accused of intolerance of other religions, and I'm not. I, like the Lord, just wants to give everybody the freedom to choose for themselves. And I recognize that the Canadian Char Charter of Rights and Freedoms gives me freedom to practice my religion as, it, as much as it gives freedom to the Buddhist and, and, and the Muslim. And I need to champion that. And so I shouldn't be falsely accused of that, but I am. Now, that's a, that's a wonderful chart. I worked hard on it. <laughs> but, but, but some of you are sitting there going, so what? What do I do with the chart now? And after I had printed my sermon, I went, yeah, so what? What do I do with the chart? So I wrote down five things. <laughs> what do we do with the chart? What do we do with this fact of being falsely accused? The first one is just accept that it's going to be the, the standard operating procedure. This is the way it's going to be. Just accept that. Secondly, don't argue your point. Don't argue the negative side of the chart. Don't spend all of your time over there trying to convince people that you're not that. Just be what you are. Social media is like awful for that. Third, don't give in to the temptation to compromise. Maybe I should rethink this. Maybe I should go back and change my position. Don't do that. Fourth, I wrote down, let God vindicate you. And this, is, this plays off of the, I'm not going to defend myself. God is a God of justice. He's going to make everything right in his time. I just need to trust him with that and not seek to vindicate myself. He'll vindicate me and... and and then fifth, and this is probably the most important one, let the manner of your life, and this really speaks to our love as Christians, let the manner of your life argue the point. Love all. Love all. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it. 
Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. All of your neighbors. Every person in your life is deserving of the love of God. Let the manner of your life speak to these things, even when you're falsely accused. All right, we're going to keep moving here. I'll live for Jesus when things go my way. But if not, I'll still live for Jesus even when I'm mocked for my faith, even when I'm falsely accused, and even, even when I'm under intense pressure. Now, we're going to pick this up in uh, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, he hears that these three have defied him. He knows who they are. He commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true? Is it true? You didn't bow? He called them by name. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, very curious. He, doesn't, he, he only sticks with the two truths. And he doesn't play upon the lie because he knew them. He knew that they do pay attention to him. He, he knew that they do serve him loyally in government. So he keyed it in on the two things that were true. And he goes after those. And the pressure gets ratcheted up on them. So much routine and ritual and repetition here. Again, the list of officials, the musical instruments, one commentator suggests it's just, again, to show how ridiculous the whole charade is. Compelled or coerced belief is not belief at all. It's, it's just fear. And you can see it in Nebuchadnezzar as he speaks to them. But he's going to give them another chance. So much is on the line for him right now. Now, if you're ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the light, here we go again. Fall down and worship the image that I have made. Well and good. If you do this, well and good. Everything is for God. We'll let bygones be bygones. You, you made a mistake. It's an honest mistake, but now you're going to do it the second time. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace, period. Now, this is, this is good politics, Politicians very often have to say certain things and they kind of get backed into a corner where they have to say certain things because of the pressure that's on them. And at this point, he, Nebuchadnezzar's done everything he has to do because this is, again, this is a power move. He's trying to consolidate his power and make sure everyone's loyal to him. So he's giving them a second chance to do that so he can save face politically. But listen, just like so many politicians, if they just said one sentence less, it would be good for them. You know what I'm saying? Listen, listen, if you just, if you just had stopped right there, everything would have been fine. But Nebuchadnezzar says this right at the end of verse 7, 15. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now he's done it. I mean, now, what's Nebuchadnezzar done? He's just gone right up into, into God's grill. I mean, he's fronting Yahweh right now. <laughs> and who is the God? Nebuchadnezzar, you know who this God is. 
This is the God who just in chapter 2 gave you the dream, gave you the interpretation through Daniel, and told you that you're the head of gold. And when you got the interpretation of the dream, this is what you said in chapter 2, 46 and 47. You fell on your face, Nebuchadnezzar, and you said, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. So what happened with that? Well, finally, okay, so now it's, now we got a big time throwdown happening. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're finally going to speak. They answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We have been loyal to you. There's really nothing more that we can say. We've let our actions speak for what we're saying, but if we're going to say anything, here's what it is. If this be so, if we have to be thrown into the fiery furnace because we're not going to bow, okay, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He's that powerful. And he will deliver us, they say, from your hands, O king. In other words, whether we live or whether we die, we're going to be delivered from you. One way or another, we're going to be free. And then the famous words. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I mean, these are, these are some of the most courageous words spoken in the entirety of Scripture. And what was Nebuchadnezzar's reaction? Oh, guys, you put it that way. I mean, that's just awesome. I'm so proud of you guys for like standing up for your convictions. And what I really need in government, in fact, is like some young men who are really going to stand up and kind of, you know, uh, no, that is not his reaction at all. In fact, verse 19 says, remember back in verse 13, he was in a furious rage and now he is, let's amp that up. He is now filled with fury. Why? Because the whole exercise, the whole thing on the plain of Dura is about him consolidating power and there's three teenage boys that he can't control. So he's not all powerful because they wouldn't bow. He couldn't control them because God was in charge in their lives. So, like, at this point, he's losing his mind. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression of his face was changed. Have you ever been around somebody who's been, like, that angry that you can see it in the expression on their face? And so then he illogically orders the furnace to be heated seven times more. That's just, like, a perfect number. It's like, turn it up to max. Seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and other garments. They're really just kind of setting up to say, these guys were combustible. <laughs> and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed the men who took them up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, honestly, at this point, the narrative could end. You could just put like a period at the end of this sentence, and that would be the end of the chapter, and it would be an awesome story 
of how three young men were courageous enough to stand for their convictions and allow themselves to be burned in that way. It could end right there. They died for what they believed in. They knew what the Ten Commandments said. They knew that the first commandment was to have no other gods before me. And they lived that out in a, in a far distant land by conviction. And they allowed themselves to be martyred for that conviction. But this is so far beyond our ability to even understand this. But this is really the end for so many Christians. This is how the story ends for thousands and thousands of Christians. Not throughout history. I'm talking about right now. I, I went to a website um, for the ministry Open Doors. You, you've heard of this before. And it advocates and supports those who are in the persecuted church. Advocates for them and supports them. Listen to, listen to these numbers now from Open Doors. This is the way it ends for a lot of Christians. 255 Christians are killed every month for their faith around the world. 255 every month are martyred for their faith. 104 Christians are abducted every month. 180 Christian women are raped, sexually harassed, and forced into marriages outside of their faith every month, 180. 160 Christians are imprisoned every month without trial. 66 churches, just like this one, gathering on Sunday mornings, 66 churches every month are attacked while worshipers are gathered. Verse 23 is the way it ends for so many Christians. We have to be able to stand in the face of intense pressure. And this is exactly what we're talking about when we say, but if it doesn't go my way, I'm still going to live for Jesus. And some of us are sitting here right now going, I don't know if I could do that. In fact, I don't think there's a person in this room who could say with absolute certainty, I know I wouldn't deny Jesus in the face of a gun barrel or a fiery furnace or a noose. But the thing is, if you're a genuine follower of Christ, you would. You would stand. I, I know that for certain because of the way Jesus talked to some of his disciples prior to his crucifixion and before they would launch the church. And he said this to them in, in Luke chapter 12, when they bring you, okay, this is persecution, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is the miracle of the moment. This is God taking whatever we have in terms of faith and His Holy Spirit moving in our lives to speak. And this is why it's so important in a message we're talking about courage and we might be tempted to look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, those are the heroes of the story and they are not. God is the hero of this story. God is the one who's giving them the courage to be able to stand. 
This is much less about the three young men and their courage and more about God's awesome power giving us what we need when we need it to stand under the intense pressure. God's going to give you what you need when you need it. But it's a choice you have to make. You have to decide now whether or not that's the life you want to follow Him in that way. Because God won't decide that part for you. They had to choose on that day, bow or not bow. That was part of the will that God gave to them. So the decision is always in front of you every day of the week. It's in front of me every moment of the day to obey or not my decision, to be faithful or not my decision, to live a holy life or not my decision, to submit to God's word or not. That's my decision. And the temptation to cave into this world and its values is huge. Will you live for Jesus when things go your way and even when they don't? You decide. And it's intense because this isn't just about, here's where the temptation really comes to light. It isn't just about the worship thing. I mean, face value, you look at Daniel 3, you just say these three young men, it was all about, well, they didn't want to worship the statue, but it's not really about that. It's about what they had that they were leaving behind. I mean, at this point in the story, they're eating well, they're living in a nice place, they're being educated, they're well cared for, it's peaceful. They have friends around them. They're living a very good life in a very prosperous city. They really have no cares in the world whatsoever. And in the moment that they decide not to bow to the statue, they're getting rid of all of that. They're saying all of that is expendable. And that's where the temptation is for us. Not in some devotion to some deity. It's in, am I willing to leave what I have? Am I willing to sacrifice, in essence, my prosperity, my comfort? Am I willing to sacrifice my security for Jesus Christ. And that's where the temptation is most acutely felt. What value do you place on these things? See, if you bow, you can keep all of it and be comfortable and secure. But if you don't bow, you just might have to sacrifice it all. If you're not willing to pass the values test, if you don't check the box, you might have to sacrifice it all. I mean, this is the normal Christian life. Am I willing to lose everything for Jesus? This is, you know, what he said in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You got to do the same thing Jesus did. He took up his cross. He went to the place of crucifixion and he gave his life and shed his blood for us. All of the comfort, all of the security set aside in order to do what the Father had laid out for him to do. The pressure was intense, but Jesus gave it all up for you and for me. And now we follow him, no matter the pressure we're under. Now, why do this? Why, why live this way? Notice this finally in your notes, because I want to give God room to work in my life or in my death. 
I think, you know, as I look back at verse 17 and 18, the but if not statement, that's kind of like my favorite part of Daniel chapter 3. And, and yet then I get to this next part starting in verse 24, and I kind of go, you know what, I kind of like this section too. But I feel a little bit like this section needs to have like a, a, little, a, like a laugh track with it. Because some of the things that happen here are so funny and so ridiculous. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, remember now, they've, they've been thrown into the fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, did, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Are you guys seeing the comedy here? They answered and said to the king, uh, true, O king. It was, it was definitely three. Yeah. Verse 25, he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Most commentators believe that this is a Christophany or a, or a pre-incarnate um, appearance of Christ. That this is Jesus walking around in the furnace with them. They're just walking around. Nebuchadnezzar is beside himself thinking about this. Imagine how bright he's a polytheist trying to describe what he's seeing. So he says a son of the gods. In other words, there's some kind of divine apparition person inside the furnace with them. And how bright that appearance would have had to been to be brighter than this fire that's been turned up to max. Well, then it just gets funnier. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God. He's trying to make good with God right now. And then he says to them, come out and come here. Now, they were not immediately coming out because I would think that if you were in a burning, fiery furnace and you weren't hurt and Jesus was in there, you'd want to stay in. Would you not? Let's just hang out here for a while. This is really cool. So he calls them out. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire and go through the whole routine again, the satraps, the prefects, all these guys, they gathered and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of the heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Set aside the king's command. They stood by conviction. They didn't check the box. And yielded up their bodies. Now this is this. You have a pagan king who's going to deliver some powerful theology of how to live for God. They yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, he was the only one doing it, by the way, so I feel like this law is for him shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there's no other God who's able to rescue in this way. There's no other God able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted them in the province of Babylon. You gotta leave God room to work. But God's not gonna have that room to work unless you stand and live on the convictions of his word. I love what Ray Ortland said at this point, essential to maturity and indeed beauty is living with unrelieved pain, unresolved wrong, unremedied injury. I mean, that's, that describes 
very often our lives, that life is hard. And if we're going to get to maturity and we're going to get to beauty in our lives, then these things maybe won't go away. God himself writes it into our story, not to ruin us, but the very opposite, to glorify us. Let's accept it and wait quietly on him. He is not forgotten. And glorify us in the sense of that Romans chapter 8, verse 30 glorifying in that those whom he justifies or those whom he saves, he also glorifies. In other words, he's going to bring us to that place of completion in Christ. He's going to bring us to full maturity. He's going to bring us to full sanctification. And in that sense, we'll be glorified. We'll have our glorified bodies and be in the presence of God forever. So that's why we leave with, live with the unrelieved pain and all the other hardships and troubles that we face in this life, because that's our story. That's what God is doing in our lives, and I want to give Him room to work. And these three young men would have missed that. They might have gone on with their comfortable and secure lives had they bowed. No one would have thought any different. They would have missed the story that God was writing. And anytime we take a side road away from God, anytime we deviate off the path, anytime we make a decision to turn in the opposite direction, we write ourselves out of the story and we miss the thing that God wants to do. Stay the course, be faithful, give God room to work, whether in your life or in your death. Resolve to be courageous. And this isn't courage the way the world would define it. This isn't, this isn't simply an inner strength rooted in a romantic notion of, of a heroic stand. A Christian's courage is rooted in our faith in Jesus Christ. A Christian's courage is rooted in our trust of his plan and a firm conviction of who he is. Let's pray. Father, I would pray on behalf of everyone in this room who wants to live out that conviction who wants to be resolved and courageous in the face of a society that's increasingly hostile. Father, no doubt people in this room have faced it in their workplaces and in their families and in their neighborhoods. And I pray, God, that you would give us a firm resolve around these things. Help us to see you as the hero of the story. Help us to lean hard on you to believe your word and to trust your plan. Father, we want to see you work in an extraordinary way in our lives. And in these moments, we pledge with our hearts to give you the room to do that. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.